Hello there. Welcome to episode 11 of the Stencil Podcast, Death by Paper Cuts. I'm your host, Joseph Richards, and you can find me on Instagram at In the Perimeter. Today, I'm joined by Blake Jameson, an artist out of Brooklyn, New York, and we talk about his decision to quit his job at 30 to pursue art as a career, working with Topps Baseball Cards, and we even get into some NFT talk. And just in case y'all are afraid to ask people about NFTs because you don't know what you're talking about, well, worry no more because I took that hit for you. And that's love right there, right? I sound dumb so that you don't have to. And he really laid it out in a way that made it all click a little bit for me. So I am glad I brought it up. So with that, let's get to play. Well, Blake, welcome to the show. I appreciate you joining me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. So I think I I may have said it when I messaged you initially. Uh, your uh, CNBC clip showed up on my YouTube feed, and I saw the thumbnail, and I was going to scroll right by it, but I was like, well, he has spray cans. Yeah. I saw him in the tag, and then I saw, um, like, oh, well, he has stencils. That's interesting. And that's kind of how I came across you. And I was reading a little bit about it. sounds like you kind of had a, an art background when you were younger. Mm-hmm. And then kind of got back to it when you're around 30. Can you uh, right. tell us a little bit about that story and, and more specifically how you ended up discovering stencils as your medium? Yeah, of course. Um, oh, let's see. I grew up in a very creative household. My parents were artistic and always encouraged me to you know, make art. And I always enjoyed doing it just kind of as a hobby. I uh, decided when it was time to go to school you know, college, not to study art, uh, despite my parents actually kind of encouraging that route, which is funny. I know that's like the opposite of, you know, of most people's uh, experience. But uh, yeah, I've kind of taken this roundabout way to get where I'm at. I worked in digital marketing for about a decade after college, and that allowed me to be somewhat creative uh, in the things that I was doing for on behalf of clients. So that was some graphic design and uh, whatnot. And during that time, I still was painting uh, just kind of for fun, you know, sometimes on nights and weekends, or if I would go home to like visit my parents, it was kind of a tradition that I would paint something. And so, yeah, I just, uh, I turned 30 and kind of had this like aha moment where I realized that I didn't want to look forward to Fridays and dread Mondays. And so I put in my notice to quit the digital marketing job I had at the time. And I took a five week trip to Barcelona, Spain. And during that trip uh, is really, I guess, when I kind of really got into stencils. I had already like, I'd been a fan of like Banksy and Shepard Fairey, for example, for longer than I'd been an artist. And so I was aware of stencils kind of through that. And then on this kind of in, in Barcelona, Spain, I took this uh, graffiti and street art walking tour throughout the city. And the tour guide was explaining that stencils were really popular for illegal graffiti because you could spend all this time cutting a stencil and it could look awesome. And then you run out in the street and you can paint it super fast. And so that's why we see like, you know, people like Banksy using stencils. Uh, So I thought that was pretty fascinating. And then when I got back from that tour to my hostel in Spain, I like looked across the street and there was a art store. So I just went and bought some X-Acto blades and a cutting mat. And um, at that time I was just, I just bought like a big kind of pad of paper and I would like draw stuff on there and then cut a stencil from that. Do you remember what the first one was that you did? Yeah. So I did. The very first one is I made this like kind of little owl uh, character who I named Stoke. And at the time, like when I was doing like graffiti in the streets, Stoke was like my alias. So I made this like little owl uh, and that was the first one. And I actually, uh, the first place I actually painted it publicly was actually in Switzerland. Cause I had taken like a weekend trip from Spain to Switzerland to see a friend. And he just had this like cool little, like low key bridge uh, by his apartment. And so I just like went and put it up over there. Uh, and then when I got back to Spain, I like put them all over the place and met a bunch of artists in the process, which is awesome. And then when I came back from that whole trip, I knew that I wanted to just keep painting and stencils is, is uh, the medium that I had found that I really enjoyed. So when did you, when you got back, did you still do stuff in the street or did you go ahead and make that transition to canvas? And uh, I did stuff in the street, but very, very briefly. So I grew up uh, and where I was living at the time was just North of San Francisco uh, in Marin County. And so like San Francisco at the time, like, you know, the Giants uh, baseball team was winning uh, every other year. The Golden State Warriors were really good. 
and like I grew up enjoying sports. And so that was one of the first things I did is I actually did this Buster Posey, who's a Giants catcher. And then I just kind of put him up in a few different spots around the stadium. But I got to tell you, man, like I am, I'm usually like a very like by the book, follow the rule, <laughs> read the manual. Uh, you know, like I'm, I'm that dude. Like I'm not, I'm not like a vandal, you know, or whatever. But like it was, it was a, it was like really uncomfortable. Like, I mean, it is thrilling of course to like, out there and painting and then like drive by it later and see it it's cool but it honestly it wasn't worth the stress to me like i'm just you know it was too too nerve-wracking so i just also like i want to be able to make it a business so i wanted to sell my art and canvas has made a lot more sense than murals or steps or like than graffiti to me no i feel you on that i'm kind of the same way i like i like the idea of having stuff out in the street and and doing all that but then yeah i think it would be so stressful just to do that and course i got kids now so i got to think about that so that's kind of yeah i mean and you know like when i was young i mean i'm i'm 36 now i don't have kids but i'm definitely like too old to be doing stuff that could get me arrested like for silly reasons and so yeah i mean may like i'm trying to think like maybe if i was young, you know when i was in high school or something maybe i would have been more like into that but like even then like very like it's interesting i'm like from a legal like or like a like a society's rules or whatever perspective. Like I'm very like by the book, but like I'm also extremely risk tolerant with my businesses. I'll quit my, you know, corporate job at the age of 30 and start painting full time, which is like arguably riskier than like painting on the street where you could get like a fine, but like I'll take those risks all day long. But yeah, like this, the stuff, I don't know. Breaking the law has just never been my jam. Yeah. I know there's a lot of cities and there's one about an hour from us where they, they let people paint on the uh, electrical boxes. Mm, so I always mm-hmm. thought that was cool. They kind of made it illegal, like legal spaces uh, to still kind of do that stuff. Yep. And Barcelona has those too, where like they had walls where there are just like community walls that you could just, you like would go through an app and like book a, book a time slot and then you can just go and paint. And as long as you like had that app, you could just show like, you know, police or who, nobody would mess with you. I'm still, I'm a canvas and like be able to sell my art kind of guy or now like NFTs and sell my art kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, if we have time, I definitely want to ask you about that. Cause I, I keep reading about it and I, I still don't totally understand it. Uh, what's yeah. going on in that space. Same with like cards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, happy, happy to chat about either, whatever. You probably get that a lot of people have just gotten back into collecting probably through your stuff or. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's cool. I think. Like I mentioned, I'm 36. I grew up collecting baseball cards uh, with my dad in the 80s and 90s. You know, a lot of uh, I was in the Bay Area, so Oakland A's and Mark McGuire were my teams. But I think also like a lot of people, like I kind of outgrew that and I stopped collecting cards for a long time. I still had this kind of collector mentality, whether it's collecting art or I mean, I did pogs and magic cards and beanie babies, like all that stuff. I'm always like collecting and flipping, but baseball cards have fallen out of my life for a long time. And when I got contacted by tops to recreate uh, iconic baseball cards, you know, kind of for the modern day, which was last year, that really got me back into that hobby of collecting cards and collecting all kinds of stuff, sports cards, Pokemon cards, obviously still collecting a ton of art. It is great. It's like, I've, I've gotten to bond with a lot of my collectors that also had a similar experience where they grew up loving baseball cards. And then, it's been maybe two or three decades since they've even thought about a baseball card. And now they're kind of back in the game with whether it's my art or, you know, tops has a huge lineup of very talented artists. I just did a live stream with three of three of the guys uh, this afternoon and and we're all kind of like a family too, which is, which is really cool. So it's, it's wild, man. My business has has just gone places. I never would have imagined uh, like two years ago um, to where I'm at now is pretty wild. I'm so I'm 39. I, same thing. The baseball cards growing up and dropped it for forever. Then I started back up before we had kids and then dropped it for like 10 years and just got back to it like the rest of the world in the past year and a half. And it's just crazy how different that space is now from when I was growing up. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's taken on a life of its own, especially like last year because COVID, you know, there was no sports. And so the baseball cards that I was producing with Tops were some of the only kind of sports related thing that people could like tune in and constantly get because mm-hmm. you couldn't just watch a baseball game every night or basketball or whatever. But like these cards were coming out every Monday through Friday, there'd be new cards on top's website by me and 
20 other artists. So it was really, it was, it was honestly like COVID impacted a lot of businesses negatively and it definitely had negative impacts on, on, you know, my life and my business. But I really got lucky in terms of being involved in a project that kind of got a boost from sports not happening, which is weird to think about. So, so that's the project 2020, right? That was the initial. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So for anybody that doesn't, uh, isn't familiar, Tops Project 2020 uh, ran throughout the entire year last year. It was myself and uh, 19 other artists that Tops had chosen to work with. And we were all recreating 20 of iconic Tops baseball cards. So for example, Ricky Henderson, Ricky Card, Nolan Ryan, rookie Derek Jeter, uh, as well as some modern players, Mike Trout was in the set. And so because of the sports, like just lack of sports in the world, that project ended up kind of becoming this hub for card collectors as well as baseball fans to be integrated into a new conversation about, you know, things that they kind of share, uh, interest in, which in this case is like art and sports. Kind of going back to stencils. I know you said you were a fan of like Banksy and, and Shepard Ferry. How did you kind of, I guess, did you maybe teach yourself? It sounded like you were kind of hand drawing your stencils and cutting them out. Man, it's uh, it's so cool how that process has evolved. Uh, and that's like the stencil element of my work is the only thing that's the same in my work from like when I started painting full time six years ago now. I did do it, you know, when I was in Barcelona, I was just like, you know, like now I have like a huge commercial grade printer and, and all kinds of bells and whistles, but I'm traveling, you know, with a backpack. So I buy this like 18 by 24 inch sketchbook. And then I'm basically, I have my iPhone. So I'm just like looking at like photos of things I think would make a cool stencil and then just like drawing it, you know, just looking at it and drawing it freehand. Then when I came back to California, obviously with, with different technologies and having access to printers. And at first it was printing at like my local FedEx. And I think I saw that like, I think it was maybe exit, exit through the gift shop had like a scene where like uh, Shepard Ferry was printing out like these really long stencils, three feet wide by like super long from the FedEx, like self-serve print, print and ship center thing. And so I, I had one of those near my house. And so then I just started, started printing out stencils. Like I said, like a lot of YouTube, it's really, it's fascinating to me that like two different stencil artists can make this, take the same photograph or same reference thing and make totally different stencils based on their kind of style of how they cut them. And I remember like for a while I was using Photoshop cut out, you know, the cutout filter, setting the levels to like five and make a five layer stencil. And then like whatever, fa- whatever, um, uh, Photoshop would spit out as those five layers. That's just like how I would cut it. And I think it was good because now I'm doing like one or two layer stencils and cutting five layers. Like I, I would spend like, 20, 30, 40 hours sometimes cutting stencils for like a single painting and then paint it and be like, that's, eh, you know, it's okay. I got to do another one now. Did that for a while until I like, once I cut enough of them, then I started to be like, okay, I, I can actually do this myself. I don't need a, like, I don't need Photoshop telling me where to cut these lines and B I'm going to try to make art that like, even if somebody watches me do it start to finish and is, is a fly on the wall for the whole process. I still want there to be some magic where like not anyone could just redo it. And the way that I was making my stencils at first with just the Photoshop filters felt very much like I'm just like a machine making the art that like the, you know, that the computer tells me to do. Mm -hmm. So now the process is very different where like I'll print out literally just a photograph grayscale, usually turn the opacity like way down just to save ink. And that'll be the full size of however big I want my canvas. And then I'm just using the blade. and, And like I said, like, one or two layers. It's usually a black layer or always a black layer. Sometimes I'll add a highlight layer. And then oftentimes like all kind of the midtones and everything I'll just like do by hand. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. I watched some of your, your live paints. Um, it looked like you were kind of like hand painting the, the middle layers on and then maybe using, you had some of those uh, like screen printing maybe on top of those on some of yep. them too. And then you always had the black layer that was a, that I noticed that you stenciled on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a mix. Uh, I have definitely have really enjoyed experimenting with silkscreen. I've dabbled like, you know, I've done a couple like weekend experiments over the last six years where I'll go to Michael's or Blick and I'll buy like a tiny screen and the emulsion and I'll try and like bake it outside in the sun. And uh, I've always had trouble with it. And now that I'm in New York, I have a pretty close print shop here in Brooklyn that like burns screens professionally and can do them large scale. So it's similar to where like I'm designing 
in this case, I design it in Photoshop, send them a high res print file. They make the screen and send it to me. And it's like, it's, it's almost as if like, if I sent some, send, send it somewhere and then someone else like just cut the stencil out for me, they, they prepare the screen and then I can like mix that in, in between stencil layers or acrylic or anything else that I'm doing. I was also going to ask, I noticed how you did your bridges. Where did you, I've seen other people do it. I was just curious where you picked that up. Like using, I think you use drywall, uh, drywall tape pairs. Yeah. So it's called fiber tape and it's this, uh, fiberglass kind of mesh. And I put that over the top of every stencil after I finish it. And what that ends up doing is like, like you mentioned, like I don't have to worry about building bridges to any, any of the islands when I'm cutting a stencil, I just cut whatever I want to feel like cutting put the mesh down, which is sticky on one side that sticks to, to the paper. And also like when I added that to, I, I stopped cutting from poster board and started cutting on actual, just regular paper. And that's so I go through less blades. It's just a lot, a lot nicer to do. I found that trick out from another uh, street artist named Meg Zaney. She is uh, out of LA. She's still super active, uh, very cool art and, and a friend of mine. And she was visiting uh, my studio in California, my first studio, and showed me that trick. We like went to Home Depot, picked up the stuff, brought it back. She like did one of her stencils, put it on, and ever since then, I'm like, this is dope. And another thing that I really like about it is it. I end up with this like kind of square grid texture on on the paintings, mm-hmm. and like depending on like if you if you don't know, like I think it's funny that it kind of looks almost like pixels. So like I'm painting something that's completely analog and it's only done by hand, but the actual, the way the paint ends up kind of on a finished piece, it almost looks like these were like individual, like computer pixels. Uh, and I find that, I find that fun. Do you ever get people that know what they're looking at and ask you about that? They wonder if they must think you just cut out, <laughs> you just cut out every pixel you see. I do. I get a, I get a lot of people. So I'm very much a sharer. Like if, if people have a question about how I do something, there's no, there's no trade secrets in my, in my world, Mm -hmm. you know? So a lot of times people see whether it's on a live stream or a pre-recorded video, they'll see me cutting my stencils and then putting the mesh over top, or they'll see like close up details and see that there's the grid pattern. And so I do get a lot of people asking both on the collector side of saying like, you know, how do you do that? And then same thing on the artist side of like people, you know, curious how it's happened. And I'm always like happy to share the link to the, the product I use and a video of me explaining, you know, why I use it and how I do it. I was just curious about the bridges. Cause so there's a stencil artist in LA, his name's teacher. And okay. he does that. He uses like the, um, like window coverings, those rolls from like okay. stores. And then there's another, uh, LA artist I had on the show and she uses, it's called a tool. It's like a fabric. It's kind of the same thing. It's just got smaller uh, grids, so it's not as noticeable. Um, right. Nice. But on his, he'll apply it and then use like glue to glue it to the paper and then dry it. So it's a little more, a little more labor intensive. But that's a uh, he was the first person I ever saw do that. So I was curious if you had if you'd seen that from him. Yeah, I haven't. Um, besides Meg Zaney, who told me about it, I've never seen anyone else do it before but like i know a handful of artists that i've shown it to and and integrate it into like some parts of their of their practice Mm -hmm. but yeah i've actually teacher came up in conversation i don't remember who i I think i was talking to uh gregory sif who's another la artist a friend of mine doesn't do stencils but i think he's the one that was just telling me about teacher but yeah i mean there's just oh it's just crazy like some of the guys online like uh logan hicks's stencils are insane c215 um, I love Christians like C215, who I I think I discovered him while I was in um, Barcelona too, because he had some art out in the streets there. But yeah, it's it's crazy. I also get the question a lot of like people are like, well, why don't you just buy a laser cutter? Like you don't have to cut for all that. But like I find the magic is like in the I like cutting it by hand. I don't know. I do too. I I find it's relaxing, and then I use I just use the regular printer paper now too. Like you, it's just so much easier. Like on my hand. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't paint stuff very, you know, four or five times. And then I usually just throw them away. So I'm not worried about keeping them forever. I noticed you were, uh, I keep all of them. <laughs> do you really? Well, you have space, I guess. I have like a corner of my office to keep all my, all my stuff. Um, I noticed in your live streams, you're also part of the, uh, you got the pink knife. You're in the pink knife club. I, I do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love a little pink knife. I think I got it at Michael's. Yeah, well, they used to make the uh, black ones, and yeah. I lost that one, and I had to go buy a new one, and it was pink, which actually works out better because I can find it easier. So. Yep. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, man, keep it simple, dude. I just use the the Michael thing. That any anything that I use, you can either get it like Michael's Blick or Home Depot, which is cool. Yeah, I don't think the more I talk to people, and I've done ten of these so far. This is number eleven, but everyone's been super open, like process wise and what they use. And I feel like the the labor involved in this hobby is kind of the separator. So, like, even if we tell everyone. The tricks, yeah. I mean, with, with design, there's certain tricks that, you know, I get people want to keep to themselves, but right. other than that, even if you tell people step by step, I mean, it's, you're going to have to really enjoy doing this to, uh, to see something all the way through. Yeah. I was even thinking like, I, I'm because like when I started cutting stencil or started making art, like I really leaned on YouTube hard and there's a, t- there's so much good content but you really got to look for it. And sometimes it's buried in like a long video that's not that good. And then there's like a gem in the middle that's, that's I think like super useful. So I've been like telling myself for a long time, I really want to do like a how-to series, like start to finish every single step, how I cut a stencil and pair that with like a competition of saying like whoever can make, like submit your work. Here's the stencil file to cut out. You know, here, here's the instructions of how I do it. And I'll like judge on like, which one is the most like closest, like, you know, or whatever, like I'll pick my favorite one or some, oh, some shit like that. Because like everybody would just do such a different job. I think it'd be really interesting to see the variety. Well, that's probably similar to like the, the cards you're doing, right? Where they give, everyone's got the same cards to work from and they all end up being yeah. different. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, no, that'd be really cool. Like um, I know some guys I've talked to have done kind of tutorials on Instagram, like yeah. how to cut and, and just the basics and, I'm on like the Reddit stencil sub a lot. They people okay. do that a lot. Um, but yeah, no, that'd be really cool. I think people would be definitely be interested in that. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. So on the new one, did you get? So I know you didn't get to pick your cards for the 2020 project. Did you get to pick for this recent one, the Project 70? Yeah. So for Project 70, we get to choose our own players, and then we also, but they do give us a list. So okay. there's some people that are not on the list because Tops doesn't have the rights to. Um, but they're actively trying to add. So like they just added Mickey Mantle and Bo Jackson like in the last week, which is awesome. So we get to choose our subjects and then we also get to choose from Getty images, you know, which reference images of the player or, or multiple images we want to use. Um, again, like most of them are available every once in a while. I'll pick an image in some collection and top is like, Oh, we can't get that one. Um, but there's a ton of flexibility. And then the third layer is, you know, tops has been designing baseball cards for 70 years. And each year, their like kind of flagship top set has changed a little bit with like the way the border looks, and so we get to choose any of the any of the past years of tops cards. And so, for example, I'm making like a Babe Ruth with, but it's like a 2010 tops design. And so, like, there aren't any Babe Ruth tops cards that are 2010 design. So hopefully, like, my thinking is okay. Maybe that's that is going to be, you know, collectible to the guys that like Babe, and. That's just an example. I actually don't know if there are any 2010 Babe Ruth cards, but that's, that's the, like the general the general idea is like we're we're making new things that uh, are kind of hybrids of of a lot of different inputs. So how does that rights work? I just assumed that maybe those were spread out to all the different card companies since they all print cards of the different players. Is that not how it works? So there's a few different layers to it. There is. The actual, like the league itself, as well as the players association. So the league is all active players um, and they could grant a license to a company like Tops. But then sometimes separate entities, which are the MLB Players Association, which represents all retired players, could grant a license in theory to a different company. Okay. And then we have the Hall of Fame, which is kind of its own entity that has, you know, all the rights to the likeness of everybody that's in like the baseball hall of fame and th- those people also are rights granters. So then there's also like these fringe cases and some good examples are like Mickey Mantle, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, who I know is a boxer, but like these, these superstar athletes, which now are basically run by the estates of those athletes. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes those superstars have their, a whole nother layer on top of it of, of licensing. And so there's definitely a lot of parties involved when you're working with somebody like tops They've already they already have the rights to 
the league, the player association and the hall of fame. And so the only ones that we can't do are the ones that have like individual kind of the way that their rights are managed. And so then like, now that I'm looking at all the baseball, you know, then we have to look at the photography that I'm going to use. And so that's also different because sports photographers oftentimes work freelance and then, you know, might license their art to a place like Getty or associated press, but each artist is might be a little bit different with their stuff. There might be artists that say, "Hey, I'll license this image, but it's only for posters. It's not for trading cards." Mm-hmm. And again, that's that's when it's like case by case. So it's just uh, it's a numbers game, you know. I pick enough players, I'll I'll find enough that are approved, and same with images. But it's definitely it's interesting, like seeing that business side of things. Because before, as a stencil artist, I would just find a picture on Google and print it out, <laughs> and make a stencil, you know, and then and then try to sell a painting. Uh, now it's totally there's a lot more parties involved and a lot more uh, red tape, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. I was just curious. I did a, a photo of like a, a Celtics photo that I did a painting of when I first got started. And I actually emailed the photographer because like in the 80s, the photographers actually held the rights. Like I didn't have to go through like the team or anything. And so I just emailed him like, hey, do you, can I use this to paint? And he was like, sure. And he sent me like, he's like, just don't forward this to anybody else. He's like, just delete it when you're done. Yeah, and, uh, like the high res and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was really very trusting of him. I mean, obviously, I did delete it, but it was just interesting because I talked to him, and he's like, "Yeah, it doesn't work that way anymore. You'd have to go through like, like you're saying, like the team or the league or something to get to get rights to any of this stuff." Yeah, and it's like, I mean, for for an individual artist like like myself, without tops in the picture, it would be really challenging and cost prohibit cost prohibitive. I remember I was looking into getting a license with the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, which at the when I first started painting athletes, NFL is kind of my bread and butter. I've painted most of the athletes I painted are football players. And so I, you know, have my lawyer start to like research and figure out like what do we gotta do to get the license? And it's like like a hundred grand up front. Uh, they get a very high like royalty percentage on the sales. You know, there's minimum guarantees every year that you have to be committed to like paying them X amount of money. Like it's really it would be tough for, for just a single artist, you know, like myself to like navigate getting the right, getting the rights to like do, for example, like my own baseball cards with actual like team logos and shit on them. Yeah. I was just curious how that worked. seems like it's just different for every, and I didn't know if yours would maybe fall under fair use at some point when you're doing those portraits or if that was still a, uh, going to be a thing where you needed the rights. Yeah. I mean, it just kind of depends on, what the plan is with them you know in in for the most case like if i'm just making a one-off original painting i'm not really concerned with the rights uh or the photograph stuff again only if it's like this one of one kind of new creation uh anything that i'm doing multiples of prints of putting on merch t-shirts hats or whatever then i'm looking at you know what are what are some good options and and honestly like there are tons of good options if you don't want to go you know spend big bucks on a sports license like for example felix the cat is public domain now and it fell out of public or fell into public domain uh january 1st of 20 i believe it was 2019 and so like i did a whole series where i was just doing like felix the cat stencils and felix the cat paintings because it was something that i could produce in mass that was also like recognizable and people would you know uh, hopefully like click on it i guess if they see it you know, but also like, like I said, at the, we started this whole conversation, like I'm a law abiding citizen, right? Like I look, I look for those <laughs> opportunities of like, okay, well, how can I like mass produce something that I make a stencil of, but is recognizable, but not going to cost me an arm and a leg and finding something like that was my work around. Yeah. And also as an artist, right? You want to respect photographers rights too, for their work. So it's kind of, of course, it's kind of catchy. Yeah. I try to, I take a lot of my own photos for stuff now, but I, or if I can't, then I try to use creative commons. Um, as much as possible, but that's a lot of time sifting through photographs, trying to find something that's just right. You know? Yeah. When you're looking to design a stencil, like what, what is kind of your process now? Like when you're just doing it while you're cutting? So, I mean, my process is, like I said, it's evolved a lot. Uh, My tops. So I guess like just to put this also in like more context. So I, paint a lot of original works and I number every single work like 2021-001 is my first painting of the year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And over the last six years, I've averaged between 150 to 200 paintings a year. 
Man. Um, you know, sometimes I will like paint over stuff, but I'll still like capture it, photograph front and back, like log it in my spreadsheet or whatever. And so when I get projects like tops that are, and that's like already happening, like that's just my life and how I, how I paint. So then, it, then a project like tops comes on and now like for my 1951 set, for example, I have, I had 52 or 51 cards that I had at 51 paintings that I had to make over the, over 30 days. And so in these like growing into this more like, I guess like commercial artist, like I've, I've brought on other design and like art production help uh, in staff. So now I think the biggest step for me was taking, taking a, like I said, like my stencil cutting process evolved. It went from using what Photoshop spit out to making something completely or organic and new from the photograph. And when I would do that enough times, like I kind of have this like style where if you're familiar with my work, a lot oftentimes you could see it and you would recognize it even if it was out of context. Mm-hmm. And so I, I found this graphic designer that I thought would be able to translate, you know, my style into stencils. And so the idea was that I would hire him to take a photograph, be able to turn that into like a print ready file. That's not just a Photoshop filter, but is basically ready for me to cut out as a stencil to save me a lot of decision-making time. It was a lot of back and forth with that where like he would design something and then I would still just like use a photograph and I would cut it. And then I would like compare and see how close those two ended up looking. Uh, And once his work was pretty much indistinguishable from the cutting decisions I was making when I was doing it on the fly, I started putting a lot of the production stuff of specifically tops cards uh, in with the team. So we have like, he'll prepare the stencil. I'm doing all the cutting and the painting, which we're also like filming. And then I'll usually do the graphic design after and get it ready for like an actual print file for tops. If I need help, I have graphic designers that can help with that. Uh, And then I have a video editor that like takes all that video content and we turn it into a piece of content to promote the card. So yeah, that's kind of, that's my process It's definitely, um, I'm lucky, man. I have a, I have a really cool team around me and, and really cool opportunities and it's been fun navigating like, you know, a rapidly growing art business, which I think is rare uh, in general. So say that's a lot of moving pieces. Is there a point where you would kind of outsource the cutting to somebody else on your team or is that still something only you want to do? I mean, I wouldn't honestly, like there's definitely, there were times when I would say no, uh, in the past. But as my business has expanded and grown, I think that um, I could see like for if I was doing like a large scale like mural project and, and needed to cut like huge sheets of like tons of stencils, I'm, I got people that I could tap. I mean, it's great because I live with my roommate, Andy, who's also an artist and my accountant. And like he does stencils, too. He could totally cut a stencil and I could paint it and like it would be he would cut it just like I would pretty much. So, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely open to that right now. I'm so far I'm doing all the cutting. But like I said, I mean, even like even outsourcing some of like the stencil preparation and the graphic design stuff to me was like pretty uncomfortable at first. But then once I like see like, okay, this is how the business can scale. And, you know, obviously, like at the end of the day, I'm only going to put out art that I'm like, yeah, this represents like things that I make. Right. Even even if it's a team of us. So, yeah, I mean, I I would outsource anything, I guess, if. if it made sense for the business. Yeah. I guess you got to walk that line right where you're trying to sort of mass produce things, but you still want it to be, have like your touch to everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to feel like I have my touch on everything, but I also like, it's a balance, like you said, because like there's tons of passion projects that I like just working on artistically, whether it's a stencil of something that I'm painting for myself or, a sculpture project or anything like I've got a 3d printer lately I've been like tinkering with. And so like, I just recognize that if, if I can just say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a commercial artist and this part of my business I'm doing for commercial purposes. You know, it's not like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really transparent about that. Like I want to run a successful business. And so if part of that means that, you know, my process starts to involve more parties where I'm, I'm not like end to end, hand-holding the piece of art from its initial like concept idea all the way to completion. If I'm just being it, sometimes I'm a curator and sometimes I'm a project manager and sometimes I'm a painter and sometimes I'm a stencil cutter and sometimes I'm an email marketer, you know, or whatever, like I'm okay with that because, you know, if I successfully can commercialize like that arm of my business, then 
everything else that I'm doing, like if I want to just make a sculpture and spend all weekend or spend all weekend, like preparing for my fantasy football draft, like I can do that because I've kind of earned that, that like freedom and flexibility with like having, you know, the business side of the business kind of taking care of itself. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, murals. Is that how you would attack them? Would you still have like hand cut stencils? Like I've talked to a few people on here. They kind of, they kind of grid things out and they're like, Logan Hicks still does, of course he laser cuts them, but he still does, cuts out all the pieces. Right. I don't know. I mean, if honestly it would, de- it would decide, it would depend on the size of the wall. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not by any means a mural artist. I would like to, at some point, you know, do some like shepherd fairy style, like big ass buildings. Like that'd be awesome, but I'm just not there. I wouldn't even know. <laughs> like if I got the, if I got a gig like that, I like, I'd be on the phone, like calling all the, all the mural artists that I know. Like, how, how, like, how should I produce this? Cause I honestly, I don't know. I've done like, you know, I did like a eight foot by 10 foot wall. That was like at this, like a uh, dispensary. And I did actually a Felix, the cat, uh, like smoking a joint. And that one, I just did a stencil uh, and that came out cool. But like, that's like one of my bigger paintings. And that's like, that's tiny for a mural. And I don't even know if that's considered a mural. It's just a wall. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people that do them and I always ask them cause it's hard. Same. Like, I don't even know how you would scale up to do something like that. Like the last guy I talked to did one is like four stories. And I was just kept asking like, how do you even, he said it's a lot of up and down on like a, on a lift where you, you paint, you come down and make sure you're in the right spot. You go up and, and paint another grid. And I, I just feel like, yeah, I don't know what the, uh, I don't know what the baby steps are to get to, to like what you're talking about to do in a, a whole giant wall. Yeah, I mean, and I do have friends that, like, get the scissor lift and, and shit and, like, you know, all the permits and all those things. And I mean, it's awesome, but definitely a totally different uh, totally different way of doing business than I've than I've run my art practice so far. Yeah. Um, I know you do a lot of the sports stuff now. Is there – do you do any other paintings, like, I don't know, maybe, like, just personal projects, or is that kind of just your main focus right now? Yeah, I mean – again like that's the commercial side of my work that's what's selling and so i'm going to lean into that i think that um artists uh in general like i'm i'm all for artists like having kind of a specialty focus at least for like how they think like how they want to make their money um but i paint all kinds of stuff just for myself uh i really like portraits and so i'll end up doing portraits of you know my favorite artists i have a basquiat piece that i did um in 2016 is still like one of my favorite pieces I've ever made. So I'll do that for fun. I also have really been experimenting a lot with, um, uh, abstract works. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with an artist named, uh, Callan Schaub. He's a Canadian dude. He does these like swinging buckets with kind of like holes in them and has these like really trippy paint, trippy abstract paintings. And so I've been, uh, experimenting with that. Like I just see fun shit on YouTube and I'm like, that looks like a really cool project. And then I'll just try and recreate it. And fortunately I have this like big live workspace that like is, it's a playground. I can, I can do anything. I can make a mess right now. Like I have plastic over the floor. It looks like Dexter. Uh, <laughs> I was proxy yesterday. It's just, uh, it's fun, man. I definitely, I don't just confine myself to sports. That's just how I pay the bills. But I enjoy, I mean, I do that. That probably actually sounds wrong. Cause I like, I really <laughs> enjoy, I, I enjoy the sports stuff. Like I, I wouldn't do it if I didn't have fun with it, but I also know that like, the limits of my art business are extend well beyond, you know, professional sports. Right. Well, that kind of lets you combine the portraits and sports. So you kind of get a, a little bit of both. This is probably, I can hear the cars. So you're probably, you're not in the barn anymore, correct? I guess you have a, yeah, no, I'm in a busy, yeah, we're in uh, we're in Brooklyn, New York. And it's a busy street corner, man. We're actually pretty lucky. We haven't had a lot of sirens, but I do still have the barn studio. And so for those, um, most people aren't going to know what that is. Uh, when I left my job and turned turned 30, left my job and decided to start painting full time, one of the things I did was I moved back home to California with my parents. And we have this big two acre property that has uh, several different barn structures on it. And the main barn, which is where my art studio was, has a horse. And then it's like a bunch of storage. And as my art kind of grew, as my art business grew, like my impact in my footprint in the barn i'd be taking over new barn stalls and you know then i built an epoxy room and then i had a photography studio and uh canvas storage and shipping room so it's pretty cool that um 
A, like I have the type of relationship with my parents where I can move back home at 30 and feel like really good about that being a, a great choice. <laughs> and then, you know, here we are six years later and every time, anytime I go home to visit, my studio is there and it's set up and like I have so much paint and like all the supplies. Cause when I moved to New York, I didn't want to move anything with me. I just came and bought all new stuff for this new studio. Yeah. You don't, you don't think it's a lot of stuff to you have to start packing spray paint cans into boxes and haul oh them around. God. I know. Yeah. I've had two, this is my second studio in New York. I had one in Queens and we moved across town to Brooklyn. And I mean, we had a U-Haul for a week, 20 foot U-Haul for a week. And like, we did. It took so many trips to get everything over here. We lived in Austin for a while when we moved. I packed like a one box full of spray paint cans, and I just kind of donated the rest. It's like I don't, I don't think this is worth it to fill up my U-Haul with with spray paint cans. I did want to ask you about the NFTs before uh, before you got to run. Yeah, let's do it. Like I said earlier, like, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it for like the art space and. It sounded like you are too, based on that clip. And it said like you also send them a physical product as well. I saw, yeah, I do. I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, and honestly, like I'm happy to just kind of give like a little bit of a blanket uh, explanation of like where I'm at with NFTs, what I think like potential is, um, could be helpful. So I think like, obviously it's, it's hard to ignore. You've seen NFTs around. The simplest way is that it's, it's on the internet and it's guaranteed to be authentic because everything on the blockchain is completely transparent. And so like every, every transaction that happens, whether it's the creation of a digital thing like an NFT uh, or it's a sale or a transfer, right? So if I make an NFT and then I transfer it to you just for free, cause we're friends, like that information is public. If, if people know where to look for it, that's, that's available. And what that means is that things are guaranteed to be authentic and provable to be scarce. So if there's like this NFT and there's only one of them, uh, even if there is imposters, like, you know, in the art industry, you know, you could, somebody can paint a fake Picasso. Well, then we'd have to come in and get people really scrutinizing it to say, oh, well, was this really Picasso or was it not? With NFTs, eventually, I mean, I know that it's a little bit like confusing now, but like in the future, like the way that all this technology exists, like it's going to be really easy to say, yes, that is a, that is in fact a real Banksy or that is in fact a real Picasso or, or a real Blake Jameson because this NFT and this, this transparent kind of history of its, of its provenance. And so as soon as kind of that clicked for me, working in the baseball card industry, like it's all about like the guys want this scarcity, right? They're buying these baseball cards, which are just pieces of cardboard. I buy them too. And the reason that people want to buy that piece of cardboard is because there's only 10 of those that exist in the world, or there's only 50, or there's only whatever. But with baseball cards, it's really like, there's also fake baseball cards that could get faked. And then, and then it's like, well, how do we tell? Like if, if, if a counterfeiter was able to somehow get the exact same like printing hardware that Topps uses and just recreate business, recreate the exact same card in the exact same way, put the Topps logo on it. Like, yeah, it's not authentic, but like from a, like side by side comparison, you would just never know. And that causes a lot of problems in the sports card industry. And I'm very excited to see where the NFT industry evolves to where like, that's just not going to be an issue anymore. And that's like one of the biggest things of why, why I'm like really excited about it and bullish about it. I also think that like, like you mentioned, you know, I include some physical, a physical print with the purchase of some of my NFTs. That's because I know that like the, Honestly, like the world's not really ready for it yet. The average person isn't ready for this yet. It's really difficult to sign up and buy your first NFT, having to set up your crypto wallet and, you know, everything, deposit funds, verify it with your bank. It's just, it's annoying. It's a lot of steps. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think that we have a long way to go before like everybody just kind of accepts it. And it's just like the, the normal thing, but I do think it will get there. I think that like, there's also a lot of people hung up on, Oh, you're just buying a JPEG uh, and don't get it. You know, so I say, okay, fine. You buy my JPEG online. They'll send you this physical print. You know, now it clicks for some more people, you know, some people, but some people are still like, I, I don't get it. I think there's a ton of just opportunity with community building. So like people that own your NFTs now, 
if you're selling NFTs, first of all, you're like really early to the market. It seems like if you're not doing it, you're late. But if you're already doing it, you're early, in my opinion. And it's this token that like can have changing value. So like imagine if somebody that commissioned my work, let's just say somebody that somebody that bought my very first painting ever. That was this guy, John Loomer. He bought my first painting ever with an NFT. Like I could say like, hey, John, for life, like you check in with me and I'll tell you what this token does. Like right now, it's nothing. Like I, you have the first painting, that's your gift. But in a year, it could be like, hey, whoever has this token uh, is invited to my private party at Art Basel or, uh, you know, anything. Get a, get a FaceTime, like a Zoom with me. It's just, it's really wild to me that like now we're like, we're selling these assets that even after we put them into the market, we can like, we can tinker with what the value is there. And because of that, that'll tinker with the market price of that thing. So like everybody that has my NFTs now thinks they're cool and that's great. But in whatever, six weeks from now, if I make an announcement and say, hey, sorry, another loud corner. If I say, hey, everybody that owns my NFTs on this date gets this thing. That could be anything. It could be a print. I could mail them a print. It could be a FaceTime call. It could be access to a physical party. Like then all of a sudden people are going to be going to be like, oh shit, I need to get some of Blake's art, like old art. That never happens out like outside of nfts people aren't like oh shit i better buy one of blake's you know 2016 paintings now <laughs> in 2021 that never it never happens yeah well that makes sense that's when you compare it to like so i i collect mostly basketball cards and like that 86 flares i've been working on forever and yeah so that's like the jordan card is notorious for being faked and you basically have to buy it unless you're like some kind of card savant that knows what to look at you basically have to buy it graded at this point to know that it's a real that it's a legit version so that's kind of like what kind of like what you're saying is what i'm hearing yeah i mean i mean dude it's it's crazy too because i've even seen i mean now people are like forging fucking slabbed cards it's i it's it's so wild like i usually just collect like 80s basketball is like my thing because there's like one set a year it's like four or five players a team and then when I look at the new stuff, it just, there's so many different versions. There's like refractors and all sorts yep. of shit. And I like, <laughs> just sound yeah. like an old man, but I, it's, it's, uh, I like the eighties cause that's when I grew up and it's just, it seems simpler, but the prices, man, are just so wild on everything now. It's, I had to, I had to take a break for a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately like what that comes down to is there's just, there's more people that want the card than the card exists. And so that's causing all these like prices to surge and as well as like forgeries to be created. Mm-hmm. And that's why like with NFTs, if there is, a, if there's an NFT that's in, in demand and there's more demand than supply, the price is going to go up. But like, you're always going to have that certainty that it's, that it's authentic and that it's, you know, it's rare. And also like every NFT is a gem mint 10. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, I don't know. It's uh it's going to be a fun ride to see how, see how it all shakes out. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a good point too. Like it takes condition out of the, out of the equation. Royalties too on the resales. Like when a, when an item is sold first, obviously the creator gets paid when it's sold a second time, the creator gets a percentage and that percentage industry standard kind of at this point is 10%, but it can fluctuate. Like you can actually set it higher or lower if you want to. But like in that case, like imagine if, if you had made that Jordan card, and they were NFTs and then they started trading and then more and more people wanted them. They started trading hands again. Like you're getting paid every single time they trade hands. That's that never happens in the art world. Oh, okay. So when you sell something, you're not selling them total rights. Like you still, you're still going to get a piece no matter how. That's right. How many hands it changes. Okay. That's I didn't right. know about that. Well, I've seen people also now you can buy like say 20 people want to go in on a, a gem mint Jordan card. You can buy like, like fractional buying for, yeah, yeah, like uh, Dibs, I think, is one of them. Yeah. Dibs does that, yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Well, I know we're coming up on it, man. Just wanna, usually when I end up, just kind of, if you had advice for other stencil artists that are getting started, like maybe stuff you would have known, wish you had known when you, when you were starting out. Yeah, let's see. Well, definitely, you know, regular printer paper over poster board, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, just makes such a big difference on saving blades, man. Let's see here. I like personally, I mean, everyone's different. I, I really enjoy setting up a stencil, putting headphones on and putting on like an audiobook 
and I just like get lost in the book and I can spend, you know, four or five hours straight through cutting uh, and it feel like not feel like five hours, you know? So I think finding, finding your thing that you can do, whether it's listening to music, you know, listening to podcasts, audiobooks, um, because like, like you said earlier, is like, there's really, there's no, there's no shortcut to just putting in the time and doing it. And so you got to like, if essentials is you want to be your thing, you got to spend a lot of, a lot of time with the knife and um, figure out, you know, how you cut, how your stent, you know, how you make your stencils. Cause everybody's going to be different, but yeah, find a good book. <laughs> yeah. You definitely have to love it. I don't think it's something you could uh, force yourself to do on a regular basis. Right. Totally. All right, man. Well, I really appreciate the time anywhere uh, in particular. You want people to, they want to check out your stuff that they could go to? Of course. Uh, my website is blake.art and Blake Jamison on Twitter is the best place. If you want to uh, chat, I try to respond to everybody. And then I also do uh, live streams Monday, Wednesday, Friday nights on YouTube. Also just Blake Jamison on YouTube too. Yeah. I do want to ask you, you have a, sorry, this is, you no, have an no. odd time on there. Is that like from your marketing days? Is that why you do the 23 to make it significant? Yeah, I stream at 10.23 p.m. Eastern, uh, and it was for a handful of reasons. That kind of practice started during COVID, and early COVID, like, every single person was live streaming, like, DJ live stream sets and live painting, but it was all happening kind of in this, like, happy hour, 5 to 8 p.m., so I wanted to kind of get rid of that competition. Uh, I also tend to do my most creative work from 10 p.m. to 8, or 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and so wanted to find a pocket where I could stream and still like feel like I was in a productive, uh, creative headspace. And then 23 is just my, it's my favorite number and it's a lot more memorable than 10 on the dot or 10, 15. So I find that like it makes people show up because they're like, it's a weird time. And then six in their head. Yeah. No, I was just curious. So yeah, I've watched a few of them and it's really interesting. So if anyone's interested, definitely, definitely check those out. So for sure. All right, man. Once again, appreciate it. Best of luck with everything that you got going on. Thank you, man. Talk soon. All right. Take care. Thanks again to Blake for coming onto the show. As always, send any questions, comments, suggestions to deathbypapercutspod at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram at in the perimeter. And we actually just went over 500 total listens this week. So I guess hashtag there are dozens of us. And I saw a chart a while back that said if you got more than 26 downloads in the first week of a new release, then you were in the top 50% of podcasts. I uh, have no idea how many podcasts actually exist, but it sounds really good when you phrase it like that, right? So I really appreciate everyone that has listened to the show, and we'll catch you next episode.